Well, finally, the sermon you've all been waiting for, <laughs> or at least that some of you have been waiting for, even asking for in emails and lobby conversations. For as long as I have been teaching the Bible, which is going on about 40 years now, uh, people have been asking me for another study, another sermon, another series on the book of Revelation. And people ask that, I suppose, because the book is about the future and about the end times, and we're all curious about that, but also because the book is so mysterious. Strange creatures, heavenly visions, disturbing scenes, cryptic numbers. What does it all mean? The book of Revelation is at once the most disturbing and the most hopeful book in all the Bible. But what often gets lost in all of the teaching and the study and the controversy is that the book of Revelation fundamentally is about Jesus. Listen again to the opening lines. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation could also be translated apocalypse. Now, most of us hear the word apocalypse and we think disaster, destruction, end of the earth, arch-villain of the X-Men, something like that. But the real meaning of the word apocalypse is simply unveiling. Apocalypse describes the pulling back of a curtain to see what's going on behind the scenes. And that's what the book of Revelation does for us, pulls back the curtain so we look behind the scenes at what's happening in human history. But notice, the primary subject of this unveiling is not really the future, it's Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Aside from the four Gospels, the book of Revelation is the most Christocentric book in all the Bible. It begins with Jesus and ends with Jesus. And what it reveals to us is Jesus like we've never seen him before. Anywhere else in all the other 65 books of the Bible. Like Dorothy in the land of Oz, we finally get to see who's behind the curtain. And it turns out not to be a bumbling old man who's in over his head. It turns out to be a figure so towering, so striking, so literally awesome that when John sees this vision of Jesus, he falls at his feet like a dead man. We asked one of our artists here at Grace to draw Jesus as he's described for us by John in Revelation chapter 1. Let me read the description as you look at the picture that he drew. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. He said, do not be afraid. Yeah, right. <laughs> I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, we commissioned this drawing back in the fall as a potential logo for our year-long series on rediscovering Jesus. <laughs> when we saw it, we said, why don't we save it till the end, <laughs> lest we scare people away. But this is the Jesus we meet in the book of Revelation. I think you'll agree. It's Jesus like you haven't seen him before. So let's jump to Revelation chapter 5 and a scene where John pulls back the curtain 
to the throne room of heaven. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now, the book of Revelation is a series of visions given to the apostle John at the end of his life living in exile on the island of Patmos. This is the second in the series of visions, and this is a vision pulls back the curtain of the throne room of heaven. Now, we've been saying for these weeks this spring, ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, that he is now materially present at the right hand of God in heaven. Well, now we get to see a little bit of what goes on there. It's common today for people in the political world or in the corporate world to talk about being in the room when something important happens. You want to be in the room when a strategic conversation is happening or a big decision is being made. The boardroom, the corner office, the West Wing. Well, none of those rooms compare to this room for power and significance. This passage allows us to be in the room for one of the most strategic conversations in the history of the universe. Seated on the throne in the place of ultimate authority is God the Father, who is described more fully back in chapter 4. Chapter 4 also tells us that around this throne are all kinds of heavenly creatures. Four living creatures representing the, the, all of creation and 24 elders representing the people of God. And these beings offer continual praise to God. Day and night, John says, they never stop singing, holy, holy, holy. Now, just an aside for a moment here. These are heavenly beings who are singing 24-7. Some people get understandably nervous that we might be spending all of eternity in a choir robe, singing the same song 24-7 to infinity and beyond. That's what heavenly beings were made to do. That's not what we were made to do. We were made to join God in his work of ruling over, exercising dominion over this world that he's made. And that's the work we'll be doing in this life and in the age to come. Now, if you want to wear a choir robe while you do it, that's fine. But there will be plenty of work to do in eternity. Here in this chapter, we see that this one seated on the throne is holding a scroll. It's obviously an important scroll. It's got writing on both sides, so it's full of important information. And it's sealed with seven wax seals. In the ancient world, these seals were, were designed to secure the document so that they would validate the authenticity of the document and ensure that no one but the authorized recipient could open it. And the flames were added for effect, okay? <laughs> Now, we're not told what the scroll contains, so we can only make guesses about it. Is it, is it a last will and testament for the universe? Who's going to receive it? Is, is it, is it a, a, a battle plan for the end of the age? Is it a blueprint for the new heavens and the new earth? We don't really know. But whatever it is, we sense that it somehow contains the end of the story, the secret of the ages. The answer to all of humanity's longings and problems. But there's a problem. No one is able to open it. No, no heavenly being around the throne, no earthly being is able to break the seals and open the scroll. And this breaks John's heart. Verse 4. 
I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So as he watches this scene unfold, this important document with the answer to everything that no one is able to open, he begins to weep and weep. The word here is a word that describes profound sorrow. It's a weeping that, that we understand. It's a weeping that anyone who's ever wept over the brokenness of our world understands. If you've ever shed a tear over violence or suffering or injustice or tragedy or loss or destruction or death, you understand this weeping. I was having lunch just this past week with my friend and our ministry partner, Pastor Bruce Wall from Global Ministries Christian Church in Dorchester. On a sunny afternoon, I walked into a nice restaurant here in Lexington and breezily said, hey, Pastor Bruce, how are you doing? And with sadness in his face, he looked at me and he said, this shooting in Dorchester yesterday, another young kid dead, when's it going to stop? And he went on to describe his frustration with just about everyone involved, city hall, fellow clergy and churches, the gangs, witnesses who refused to speak up. My guess is he was probably feeling frustrated as well with me for not knowing about it, thinking that if it had happened in Wellesley or Reading, I probably would have known about it. He was gracious enough not to say anything. He said, I know what's going to happen tomorrow. There'll be a press conference. All the dignitaries will come to the microphone and the cameras and they'll say, this has to stop. This is a terrible tragedy. We'll do everything in our power and nothing will change. Pastor Bruce has been working for justice and peace in Dorchester for nearly five decades. And still, young kids are being shot on the sidewalk on a spring afternoon. And it breaks his heart, and it should break ours. We open the paper this morning, we turn on the news, and we, we hear of another shooting at a, at a vacation spot in Orlando, 50 dead and probably more coming. When will it stop? That's the grief John is feeling as he watches the scene unfold. As, it's the grief we feel for the human problem, for, for everything that's wrong with this world, everything that's wrong with us that we can't seem to fix. And the story is as old as humanity itself. Adam and Eve are given everything they need for life and happiness. And no sooner do they get started than they turn away from their creator, eating from the only tree that can hurt them, and then turning against each other, pointing fingers of blame and covering themselves up to hide from each other. So God starts again with another man, Noah and his family, but they too can't get it right. So he starts again with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He forms a nation for himself, a chosen people, a special relationship. He gives them his word. He gives them his presence that they can share it with the rest of the world. Before they can even think about sharing it, they forfeit it by giving themselves to idolatry and immorality and all kinds of foolishness. Again and again, God raised up leaders to, to call them back. Moses, Joshua, Deborah, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Esther, 
None of them are able to get the nation back on track. None of them can restore them to wholeness so they can once again be God's agent in this world to bring blessing to all people. Fast forward now to the 20th century. Now we can surely get it right. We have technology. We have medicine. We have enlightenment. We have diplomacy. We have industry. We have baseball. Surely now we can find a way. And so a hundred years ago, we fought the war to end all wars. If we could just beat back fascism, the world could be safe. We'll get a new start. We'll form a league of nations. We'll all come together. Then we did. We beat back fascism. But it came back and brought the Holocaust with it. So we beat it back again and said, this time we'll get it right. We'll come together as united nations and we'll together watch over each other. And then communism reared its head and war broke out again, the hot and the cold variety, decades of conflict, the threat of impending nuclear doom. Eventually that threat was subdued and we began talking about the peace dividend what we would do with all the time and energy and money and political will that was now free because we had no wars to wage. And then terrorism struck, here and there and everywhere. A war without a front, an enemy without borders. No place on earth is safe. And we're a long way, we know, from conquering that evil. Fascism, communism, terrorism, racism, it tears away at our nation and at other nations around the world. We haven't even talked yet about selfism. What's wrong with each of us and all of us and lies at the root of all the brokenness we bring to our lives and to the world around us. That's why John is weeping. That's why we all weep sometimes at the brokenness of our world and our inability to fix it. But suddenly... Around the throne, one of the creatures speaks up and says, Look, verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, the lion of Judah was a familiar image for John's readers. It comes right out of Genesis 49, where the tribe of Judah is described as a, as a lion returning from its prey, ruling over its habitat. It came to be understood as an, as an image of God's Messiah who would conquer Israel's enemies and, and make the world right again. It's the image C.S. Lewis chose as he tried to represent the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the great lion, who would defeat the dark magic of the white witch and, and bring an end to the endless winter that had settled over Narnia. The lion is the picture of strength, the king of beasts, so when John hears that the Lion of Judah is in the house, hope rises in his chest. He turns to look, to see this one, this champion who's able to open the scroll and save the day. And once again, he's surprised. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A lamb, this is supposed to be our champion, the one who's going to conquer evil and rescue humanity. 
If a lion is the strongest of animals, the lamb is the weakest, the most vulnerable. And this is not just any lamb. This is a wounded lamb. Now, whether the lamb bore scars or stains of blood, we don't know. But it was clear to John that this lamb had been slain. Slaughtered, actually, is the word. Now, once again, John's readers would have got it right away. They would have thought of all the lambs that were offered every year as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, making them right with God and right with each other again. Those lambs that had to be perfect, without blemish, without any kind of a defect. Only a whole and holy sacrifice could atone for the sins of so many. So John turns to see this one, this one who's going to save the day, and he sees one who's both lion and lamb, who's both strong and good. And he watches that the lamb, lion lamb approaches the throne. He went and took the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. And just like that, worship breaks out in the heavenly throne room. As this lion lamb appears and takes the scroll, the heavenly beings offer their prayers and their songs to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now, don't miss the significance of these bowls of incense. They represent the prayers of God's people, all God's people of all time from all places. John wants us to know that our prayers reach heaven the prayers we offer for, for families, refugee families in Syria, the prayers we offer for families in Dorchester, the prayers we offer for families in Orlando, those prayers reach heaven, as well as the prayers for our own lives and needs. They get there. They, they, they make their way to the throne of God. And so do our songs, represented by the music and the harps being played there in heaven. Now keep in mind, these are heavenly beings playing the harp. There's not a harp waiting for you up there, okay? You don't need to play the harp to go to heaven. There are other things for you to do unless you're gifted at that, okay? <laughs> Worship breaks out. And look what they're singing. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And now we discover why this one, this lion and lamb, is worthy to open the scroll and save the day. As the lion of Judah, he's strong enough as the lamb who was slain, he's good enough. You see, the evil in our world is so powerful that none of us in our human strength are able to overcome it. We need someone stronger than we are, strong as a lion. And this evil that's in the world is so pervasive within each and all of us, we need someone better than us to show us the way, to set us free from it, someone as good as a sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus is both of those. And because it was human beings who unleashed this evil in the world, who opened the door and let it in, it needs to be a human being who delivers us from it. But who, what human being can possibly be this strong and this good? Enter Jesus, the lion lamb, the only person who ever walked this earth perfectly 
the only one willing to die innocently for the sins of the whole world, the only one able to overcome the grave and rise again to new life. Only he is strong enough and good enough, and he did it in the most beautiful way possible, not by a show of force, but by an act of love, laying down his life for the sins of the world. Who else but Jesus could pull this off? Because of what he's done, people from every tribe and language and people and nation will enter into that kingdom. Now, don't miss the significance of this phrase. John's original readers would have been shocked by the expansiveness of that phrase. As far as they were concerned, the kingdom of heaven was for Israel and a few Gentile hangers-on, maybe. But now John is saying, no, all people everywhere can come into this kingdom, every people. He uses this phrase seven times in the book of Revelation. Every tribe and language and people and nation. He wants there to be no mistake. This is a worldwide community. This is a global family. This is an international kingdom. You see, the, the lion lamb will do for us what we've never been able to do for ourselves. It's bring us together as one community, one worldwide community. And yet he'll bring us together in a way that, that we still preserve our individual identities and ethnicities. Yes, we'll all be singing one song, but we'll sing it in harmony. Each culture bringing its unique voice and range. Yes, we'll tell the same story, but we'll be from our own historical perspectives. And I can promise you, my version of the story will be different from Pastor Bruce's version of the story, but they will both be about Jesus. And no one knows in the end who exactly and how many will be in that great kingdom. But I take comfort in the fact that this, the kingdom was larger and more diverse than John ever imagined. And I like to think that like John's original readers, we will someday be surprised at who and how many are in the kingdom of God. And notice what they're doing when they get there. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. They will reign on the earth. As we learned last week, our, our destiny isn't to escape this planet and leave it behind to go to hell in a handbasket while we drift around on the clouds playing harps. That's not what's happening. We are saved to serve. We're rescued to rule, to join God in the work of exercising dominion over this earth, which is why he put us here in the first place. We're finally going to get it right. And it's a work that began when Jesus ascended to heaven and left us in charge. It's a work that will come to an end when he returns in power and glory, and a work that will be perfected for all of eternity, and we will play a part in that. So how does all of this make us strong to the finish? How does it help us live in this in-between time, the first and the second coming? Well, simply this, it encourages us. It tells us there's an end to this story, and the end is good. Justice will be done. Peace will reign. Terrorism, fascism, communism, Racism, selfism, it'll all be conquered someday, vanquished from this world. And we and this world will be everything God intended us to be, now and forever. And the one who will pull it off is the lion lamb, who is strong enough and good enough to save us from evil and to put this world right. And this Jesus, this lion lamb, 
is now with us by his Holy Spirit. He's for us in heaven and he's on his way back to us to finish what he's begun. Think how encouraging this was to those early Christians reading this. A fledgling movement being persecuted by the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. What chance did they have? What hope did they have? And here we are 2,000 years later exhausting ourselves, trying to fix what's wrong and coming up short all the time. How many leaders have come and gone? How many champions have risen and disappointed us? Is anyone worthy? Enter Jesus, the lion and the lamb, the one who's strong enough and good enough to save us from evil and put the world right. And that's what we see when we peek behind this curtain. That's the big picture. Jesus, like we've never seen him before. And he's worthy of our praise. That's why we come together to worship like this. That's why we lift our voices and sing, to remind ourselves in this crazy, fallen, broken, needy world, there is one who sits on the throne, and one day we'll put it all together. We need to be reminded of that. He's worthy of our praise. And he's worthy of our trust. We can bring our needs to him, our troubles to him, the problems of the world and the problems of our lives. Only he's strong enough and good enough to do something good with it. We can, he's worthy of our trust. And he's worthy of our service. This is a cause worth giving our lives to, giving our money for, giving our energy to. This worth sending 140 teenagers and, and adults all over the world to be about the work of the kingdom this summer. It's worth it. So that's what this looks like when you pull back the curtain and get the big picture. But what does it look like in the life of a regular person living here on planet Earth in the 21st century? Let me finish by showing you another one of our profiles in faith, a faith story of a longtime Christ follower here at Grace Chapel. Let's watch for a minute, and then we'll wrap things up. My name is Ajwa Akwa Harrison. I've known Jesus all of my life. My journey with him, however, has been a long and winding one. You see, I was brought up in a Christian home in Ghana, West Africa, where my childhood memories of God were forged in the happy simplicity of a large family with four generations of adults and children. My maternal grandmother was serene and quiet by nature. Although she was soft-spoken, she was a powerful force who modeled tenderness and unconditional love. Christ-likeness just oozed from her pores and drew everyone into her gentle and delicate orbit. These sovereign beginnings, though, were soon to become a distant memory after my mother's untimely death plunged her four children into a period of instability that led to a very different life for us. During this period of mourning and widowhood, my father's career required him to head off to England. He decided to put us in the care of his young nephew and his new bride. And in just one stroke and action, I encountered the forces of evil for the first time. Under the parental care of my cousin, Canings were regular modes of punishment. Life was hell. When my dad returned to Ghana a year later and was met with a shock at the sight of his four malnourished children, 
we were barely recognizable. He vowed never to trust the care of his children to anyone, no matter what. Our next chapter was to attend elite boarding schools and return home to the lap of luxury, attended to by cooks, gardeners, drivers, and other servants. I was enjoying the prime of my life and an envied relationship with my pedigreed boyfriend and a very misplaced certainty that my life would remain charmed. But it had not occurred to me to think about faith, church, the Bible, and with my beloved grandmother no longer here with us to intercede on my behalf, everything came crashing around me when I discovered things about my husband that eventually led to the heartbreaking collapse of our marriage. The years that ensued also marked a life-changing period the likes of which I can never wish on anyone, ever. Shortly thereafter, I received a scholarship award to embark on a course of study in international development in Israel. I began to sense that something bigger than my course of study was afoot. And indeed, Israel marked the beginnings of my journey back to my childhood, the place where faith and the love of God had once been an organic part of daily life, like breathing. I could see before my eyes that Jesus did in fact live as a man in this land, and he died for me. The most visceral experience was when I, together with a number of my colleagues, stood where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. We took turns reading the Beatitudes in that spot, with open skies and vast landscapes that felt as if I was back in his time. In the final analysis, Israel led me back to basics. It is where I would reclaim the relationship in Christ that was instilled by maternal family so long ago. Because after all my detours in life, I've returned to this familiar seat of my soul to discover spiritual rhythms that have led me to the discovery of my true self. The truth is there was my life before Israel and my life today, which is sweeter, with Christ once again planted in the center, like an organic garden. I rejoice in the unconditional love that is poured on my enduring relationship with Christ, never asking, why me? but praising Him through all the changing scenes of my life. Who but Jesus could tell a story like that? Who but Jesus could weave together all the threads of her life everything that's wonderful about this world and everything that's wrong with this world. Weave it together into a story as beautiful as that quilt she lays across the chair, as beautiful as the smile on Ajua's face. Only Jesus, someone as strong and good as that, could tell that kind of a story. And what Jesus has done and is doing in Ajua's life, he has done and is doing in the lives of tens upon thousands upon millions of people all across this planet, putting their worlds right. And if you're inclined to ask why he's not doing it faster and better, 
He might turn around and ask you why you're not doing it faster and better. Because we are his people in this world. We're not called the body of Christ for nothing. We are his hands and his feet carrying on this work until he comes again. So if there's justice to be done, let's do it. If there's reconciliation to be made, let's make it. If there's compassion to be shown, let's show it. If there's truth to be told, let's tell it. And if there's a God to be praised, let's praise him. Jesus, the one strong enough and good enough to save us from evil and put the world right. If you have never trusted this Jesus to put your world right, you can do that today by accepting his death as the sacrifice for your sins and following him into new and eternal life. And if you've done that already, then remember you weren't saved to sit in the choir loft. You were saved to serve, to go out into this world and start putting things right until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity to peek behind the curtain, grateful for all that we see in its mystery and its power and its wonder. There are things we still don't fully understand in this life or about the life to come, but we have learned this morning that we can trust you. You're worthy of our worship, and we offer it to you today. You're worthy of our trust, and we bring you our lives and our world. You're worthy of our service, and we will go out from this place to be about your work in this world. Give us grace to do that and make us strong to the finish. In Jesus' name, amen.